Good morning. It's Wednesday, October 6th, and you've joined us for this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. We've done one show on cyber this year, and I have to admit I've been remiss not to have more shows on the challenges for America in the cyber arena, but we're going to start cutting into that deficit today. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett. Danelle Barrett earned her bachelor's degree from Boston University, and though we're here in Minnesota recording the show, we will not hold that against her. And during her (laughs) career, she then earned four, I, I repeat, four master's degrees. Her career specialization was in information technology, but her service included a float assignments with a carrier strike group, a command tour at a vital communications node for the U.S. Navy, and staff assignments that took advantage of her extraordinary understanding of the modernization of naval communications and cyber operations capabilities. Her second-to-last assignment was as the Director of Operations at U.S. Cyber Command, which we're going to discuss at length today, and her final assignment was as the Director of Navy Cybersecurity. Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett has authored 41 articles on a variety of topics, and her recent book, Rock the Boat, Inspire Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader, released just in June of 2021 as an Amazon bestseller. In this next phase of her career, Danelle Barrett is a principal at Deepwater Point, and she serves on a number of boards for commercial companies. Admiral Danelle Barrett, welcome to National Security This Week. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you. And, and where are you at this morning? I am actually in Seattle this morning, so, so we have you doing up a little on, West Coast. We have you up pretty early, don't we? You sure do. That's okay, but I'm a Navy gal, so I'm used to that. All right. <laughs> so, Admiral, let's go ahead and kick off our discussions uh, today. And I, I want to start on with some questions about your career path, because I think that's going to help define a couple of things for us. The first thing it helps us to define is, is your views on leadership, and the second will be your thoughts on cyber operations and cybersecurity. Uh, that, that said, my introduction discussed your assignment in the U.S. Navy as Director of Navy Cybersecurity. And having served on the Navy staff, the OPNAV staff myself, I know there is a constant competition for finite resources available to the services. Uh, can you tell us about leading people and managing resources for such a vital role as Director of Navy Cybersecurity? Because to me, yeah. uh, having seen your, your resume, that, that position seems like it is the logical culmination of all you'd done throughout your naval service. What what critical leadership lessons from your career served you best during your time leading U.S. Navy cybersecurity? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting because there's so many people who are in that game, you know, and um, I think one of the skills that you really need at that level is the ability to collaborate and communicate and uh, be transparent and align people and actions behind what really matters. So you really have to uh, focus on strategically for the whole enterprise, for the whole Navy. Okay, when it comes to cybersecurity, what really matters? Now, there's technology and there's people and there's process. And I'll be honest with you, the technology becomes the easy part. Everybody always gets liquored up on the technology and buying this box or that thing, right? But the hard part is the evil twins of institutional resistance and institutional inertia, you know, who are always like, well, you know, hand wringing and all that kind of stuff. And so it's the people uh, process pieces that are way harder than technology always. So, you know, you can, I was in charge of policy for Navy cybersecurity and and making sure we advocated to buy the right things for the service when it came to cybersecurity um, with Congress and how to get those funded and things like that. And so um, you really have to focus on 
um, because you can spend a bazillion dollars on cybersecurity and still, you know, you're never going to have an impenetrable network. I mean, that's a fool's errand, but (laughs) so you really have to figure out what is the thing that what's, what's the juice that's going to get me the most, what's the squeeze that's going to get me the most juice there? Like, where should I put my effort? What is the most important to correct, connect, um, connect and protect our, our information warfare platform and those critical data pieces, information pieces that are that are essential to our being able to do our core missions, you know, to to secure seaways and to fight and defend and, uh, you know, uh, uh, to protect the homeland, to make sure we have freedom of navigation, just, you know, all of our critical missions. So you really have to kind of figure out what's the most important no-fail missions we got to do, and then how do I protect those? And I have to imagine that, that some of that is also requires you to collaborate with the other services and try and get them to use similar systems so everything's interoperable for the joint uh, the joint warfighting concepts. Yeah, yeah, that's a soul-crushing job right there trying to do that. <laughs> I'll be honest because you know everybody's got their own way they want to do it and everybody thinks they're a snowflake and you know nobody's really a snowflake I'll be honest with you when you come down to it but but it is. And that's a but it's a good collaboration because a lot of times you know the other services are doing things that are really really inventive and very um, exciting. Uh, for example, they had been doing some uh, development of applications um, in a project called Kessel Run, and we had been doing something similar in a project called Compile to Combat in 24 Hours. And so we combined together because we know we have applications that have to work, that are Air Force applications that have to work on our Navy ship and vice versa and things like that. So um, there's really great opportunity to learn and grow from the other services too. And, and it's very important to maintain that um, interoperability, like you said, and that's, that's a tough challenge. And, and I would imagine that, that part of the, the leadership challenges is making sure that people are open to new ideas and collaboration with others. Right, right. And, you know, it's sort of we, my friend John Chandler used to give me the my fingers together. Uh, used to be, call it sign of the wolf, mouth open, <laughs> mouth closed, ears open. You know, yeah. do more listening than you're doing talking. So really understand what other people are doing and what they're trying to achieve and how your goals may be similar and how you can achieve the same by working together. It's just a, a, a great collaborative effort and the synergy makes it even stronger. So, so that, uh, that leads us into your book uh, and uh, Rock the Boat. I, wish, I definitely want to talk to you about that. Uh, what, what inspired you to write uh, a book on leadership? Um, you know, it's interesting. You probably know this too from your time uh, in, this, in the Pentagon and whatnot in the service, but um, you know, as you progress in the ranks, you're constantly talking to groups, you know, about mentoring and leadership and topics like that. And I found that the same topics come up all the time. Yeah. You know, like, hey, what do I do if my boss is a complete jerk? You know, how do I have a home work life balance? How can I plan a career and not just job jump around job to job? Or how do I, I mean, all these kind of things um, just kept coming up again and again and again. And I said, well, my husband, I'm like, I'm just going to write them all down, you know. I mean, and I wanted to put it out or write them down, though, in a way that's more like a conversation. You know, not like a, I don't know, sometimes leadership books can be kind of preachier or they, they're really dry. They'll have like mathematical formulas in them, which makes my head completely <laughs> want to explode when I see that. I'm like, okay, don't give me some mathematical formula about leadership. It's about people, right? Right. And so I really wanted to be able to um, kind of uh, give those lessons, but in a way that, uh, you know, you talk about them in storytelling and, and sharing what we call sea stories, as you know, in the Navy, right? Um, because people will remember the leadership story long after 
um, the, the theory discussion is over. You know, they'll come up to you later and be like, oh, I remember you told the underwear story or I don't know, the, the work-life balance story. You know what I mean? And so they'll remember that way longer than, than the, the actual dry theory. So I, I tried to make it more focused on something people could use. And, and I think it's important that, uh, that we highlight this idea that when you are a leader, when you lead, you're leading people and you manage resources, Right. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of people, I think, confuse those things. I'm a manager of people. Well, no, you're not. (laughs) You're supposed to be a leader of people and you manage the resources available to you. Right. And the the management piece can't be discounted, too, because, I mean, part of leadership, you know, as we say, is taking care of people. Right. Well, a lot of taking care of people is the grunt work of taking care of people like, hey, did I get their performance appraisals done on time? Did I process their paperwork for an increase in pay or, or whatever it is they're trying to, or they sign their training certificate on time. You know, the, the mechanics, the management of all those administrative tasks is important because if you don't do those right, you aren't taking care of your people. That's right. You know, That's so right. you'll hear people kind of spout all the time. Ah, people are my most important asset. Yeah. You know, they got people who are losing leave or not getting approved to go on vacation because someone didn't process their, their TSP cover sheet on time or whatever, you know, so it's your job as a leader to make sure the management piece is, is done like a well-oiled machine so that people are indeed taken care of. Yeah. So w- people can buy your book uh, on Amazon, any other platforms where they can snap that up, rock the boat? Uh, yeah. Like any, a lot of uh, local bookstores and also, um, you know, Barnes and Noble, any of the big uh, booksellers online. Okay. Uh, so, Admiral, you're 41 articles, which you either authored alone or co-authored with others. That, that, that's a prolific writing resume. Do you find passion in the writing itself, or is the sharing of ideas, uh, is that what drives you to write so many articles? Um, yeah, it's more the sharing ideas, and I'll be honest with you, it's usually when something pisses me off. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, hey, there's a better way to do this. Come on, let's let's think of a better way, right? <laughs> and sometimes it's just to provoke thought you know you know my ideas aren't the best ideas necessarily and and if it but if it provokes somebody to come up with a better idea or the uh, great idea then perfect you know what I mean so that's kind of to me it's more um, interesting to provoke the thought and to be a little bit um, maybe outlandish or uh, force people out of a comfort zone because that's where you get some really great ideas and that's where you get everybody else out there crowdsourcing a better idea yeah, if if we all stay in our comfort zones, nothing ever changes, right? We have to sort of right. push the envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Admiral Barrett, it's let's shift to your time as director of operations for for U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, now, for our audience, I, I think they need to understand that the really cool stuff <laughs> that we <laughs> that we would love to be able to talk about with cyber operations that that all remains classified. Uh, the specific kinds of operations who they're done to, why they're done, you know, those things, the effects generated from those operations, those are classified and and for obviously for very good reasons. But I think there's still plenty of things we can discuss that are unclassified and and still will inform our listeners. Uh, So that said, let's start with an overview on U.S. Cyber Command. Can can you tell us a little bit about Cybercom? Yeah, it's a fairly new command. Uh, It's a joint command, which means we have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard people working there, along with a lot of civilians and people from other agencies. Um, and we work very closely with the National Security Agency, for example, and the CIA and the FBI and you know, all the agencies that you can think of, uh, Department of Homeland Security. And because everybody has a, a role in that fight, you know what I mean? And so um, the uh, the command was stood up about five years ago, and it, um, a little bit more than that, actually, now. But it is um, the nation's way to protect um, Department of Defense 
information networks and assist in other um, agencies' efforts to uh, to protect networks. And then, you know, they do a lot of coordination with the Department of Homeland Security on that. It's particularly an agency within there called CISA. Um, and so uh, it's, it's unique in that um, uh, a lot of uh, our other commands are geographically based. So like when you think of Indo-PACOM, that's a command that looks a joint command of all the services that supports operations out in the Pacific or CENTCOM. People have maybe have heard of CENTCOM, which does, you know, um, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Middle East. Um, and so they're geographically based. But then you have a couple of commands that their mission spans everybody. It's global. And so you can think of transportation command like that, everybody who does the logistics and things like that. And CyberCom is like that. So CyberCom is a command that looks globally at our networks and how we protect and defend those. And then how we take the fight to the enemy um, in an offensive way um, on the on our capabilities to help secure the nation. So as a, as a combatant command, U.S. Cyber Command, it has a, a four-star general or admiral in command? Yes. Yeah, so um, it, when I was there, it was uh, Emma Rogers, and now it's General Nakasone. And he, General Nakasone, obviously, you know, he had come up through the ranks. He helped uh, build and, and establish CyberCom. So he's a man with incredible vision, and uh, um, he's the right guy for the job right now, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you'll see him testify in front of Congress on different things that are important for CyberCom and those kind of things. But he's also director of the National Security Agency. So he has a dual hat, if you will, what we say in the Navy or in the, in the uh, military is a dual hat. He's He's got two very significant jobs, both director of the National Security Agency and the commander of U.S. Cybercom. But their missions are so intertwined that it really makes sense for one person to sort of be the person at the top of both of those organizations. And he does that exceptionally well. You actually preempted one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and that was, uh, do you think <laughs> the, yeah. it should be a dual-hatted uh, director of NSA and commander of U.S. Cyber Command because they are so closely linked? Or or a lot of people are advocating that those two organizations should be split apart with two different uh, heads. Uh, in your experience, you, you think should stay one person? Yeah, I do. And I do because I think that you want one person to be the arbiter when there's disagreement between both. And normally there's not because the two commands work very closely together and they're very supportive of each other. But, you know, you are going to get personalities or different opinions and about what should happen. And and one is a civilian agency and one is a military agency. So they're their authorities and their abilities to do things are a little different. And so it does, um, to me, make sense to have one person at the top, one leader at the top who has the vision um, to understand both of those sides and what the nation needs and what needs to happen from a cyber perspective, either offensively or defensively, and then can can execute that because can, can, can be the person who says, okay, yeah, if I've heard both sides and this is what I'm deciding, as opposed to it having to get bumped up higher and higher, you know, the right. president or something else, you know, to resolve. <laughs> I mean, you know, we need to be able to resolve these. But I will tell you, it takes an exceptional person to do that, both those jobs, and to do both well. And General Nagasone is that kind of exceptional leader. And but they are they are a snowflake leaders like he and so him and so you, you know, uh, it's just it's it, it's a challenge to find the right guy to be able to do both those jobs and and uh, do them well. But yeah. he's, he is absolutely the right man for the right job. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, a cybersecurity and cyber operations expert. 
Uh, so, Admiral, let, let's discuss command relationships between Cyber Command and the combatant commands. You mentioned a little bit of that. Uh, we've recently had here on the show retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Joe DeSalvo, uh, who was Deputy Commander of U.S. Southern Command. And we've also had Rear Admiral Mike Studeman. I think you probably know, know Mike. Uh, mm-hmm. who, and he served as the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Southern Command and currently serves as the Director of Intelligence for the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> those theater combatant commands, they, they obviously have a very clearly defined military-related mission. Cyber com- Command, as you mentioned, is a global uh, combatant command. H- how do those relationships work between CyberCom and, and the theater combatant commands? Are you providing support to them? Or are they providing support to you? just depends on the mission. I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, it is depends on the mission because, you know, maybe the mission is information related and they are actually supporting you. Right. So you could be the supported or the supported commander. In most cases, we are supporting all of their other lines of operation, things that you would think of as traditional um, military kinetic strikes and military operations, you know things that you would do with airplanes and ships and submarines and that kind of thing. Right. And Marines. Um, And so we are normally um, supporting them with our um, information operation, information warfare capabilities and our ability to defend the networks that they need uh, to execute their missions. And so it's uh, both offensive and defensive operations that Cybercom does to support. And so the combatant commanders each have unique threats. I mean, you know, our biggest threats to our cyber in the cyber world from a nation state perspective are our great power competition, uh, you know, Russia, China, and then you got Iran and North Korea is probably, you know, the next ones up behind them, right? So, you know, each region of the world, each of these COCOMs has their own bad actor in their backyard, right? But the thing you have to remember about cyber is, you know, it's ubiquitous. There's no geographic boundary. Like if you're uh, have a bad actor in the Pacific, he could be actually executing that effort from servers in Europe or servers in, you know, United States even, you know, yeah. so you, you, it's a global problem with it that requires someone with a global look. That's why it's important for us cyber command to um, have that, that role to look across the whole, to see the whole enterprise, to see what is going on and not just necessarily in one combatant commander's backyard. Yeah, it's sort of that uh, a strategic approach to uh, to cyber operations uh, where you're talking on a global strategic basis, not a theater operational uh, approach, which I think is probably the right way to go for something right. that, that can happen literally from from anywhere in the in the world targeting anywhere in the world. So. Right, right. So that said, there are clearly some strong operational relationships between Cybercom and the and the other military four-star uh, combat commands like European Command, CENTCOM, Central Command, like you said, Southern Command. Is Cyber Command's mm-hmm. mission limited primarily or, or even solely to, to DOD operations for both cyber offensive and defensive uh, operations and, and cybersecurity? Or does Cyber Command also play a larger role in defending the entire U.S. government's cybersecurity uh, for for our systems. I'm sure our listeners would like to better understand the limitations placed on Cybercom as a DOD combatant command. Yeah, so we have to remember there's different authorities giving to different organizations in the government for things. So, for example, um, the defense of Department of Defense networks is the primary goal of Cybercom um, when it comes to defensive cyber operations. Um, when it comes to... Uh, 
supporting, for example, say an attack on our infrastructure, critical infrastructure or SCADA as we call it in the United States, we would assist the Department of Homeland Security in that, right? And so, I mean, we, we provide, U.S. Cybercrime provides a lot of um, capability that's very helpful for others. And sometimes if they're asked, you know, the Secretary of Defense could be asked to provide support to some other agency or some other organization or perhaps even a civilian organization, right? A civilian company or something. If there was like a, a huge, uh, say, uh, cyber attack that affected our national security, so they could be asked to support with some of the teams that the Cybercom has. Um, so, so primarily the role is, as you said, is to support and defend our um, our DoD networks, our Department of Defense networks. Uh, but we also do support for other agencies and for other organizations as requested and, and as that can be supported. And remember, too, so we have tight, what are called Title X warfighting authorities. Right. Um, and th- there are other authorities that are resonant in other organizations. NSA can do certain things when it comes to intelligence. The FBI, like if there's a cyber attack in the United States, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security would take lead on those kind of things um, normally. And so, but they may request some support from Cybercom in some instances. That kind of thing. Okay, so so Cybercom's relationship then with, and you mentioned it a little bit, with the civilian business community in the United States. Is Cybercom allowed to work collaboratively with the tech industry, say Silicon Valley, or, or the largest of the American-owned corporations when it comes to cybersecurity? I mean, are you allowed yeah. to like reach yeah. out to them and say, hey, let's get together and work on this uh, cybersecurity piece yeah, particularly like for example, so say if there's a intrusion on on, on like solar winds when they had the solar winds issue and there was an intrusion on a specific kind of software, you know, all the organizations in the government are going to work with that civilian company to figure out okay you know, what happened, what's going on, what can we do about it, how can we prevent it, how can we clean up all those kind of things. And so it's not just the DoD that's doing that; it's the DoD and FBI and Department of Homeland Security. They're all kind of working together. Um, because everybody needs to understand that and how it affects their uh, responsibilities and their networks um, and how they can help others to to get out of the problem, you know what I mean? And, and if we drill down a little bit more, linkages between Cyber Command and, and state, county, and, and municipal governments in the United States, is Cybercom allowed to work directly with any of those entities for national security interests? Cause, and we'll, maybe we'll talk a little about this uh, shortly, but we know ransomware has been uh, used rather effectively to go after even municipal governments or hospitals, you know, all kinds of things like that. Does sure. Cyber Command get involved in any of those things? Um, you know, they can when asked and approved by the Secretary of Defense. Um, and, and there's also, remember, National Guard, um, which is a little bit different. They have some cyber capabilities as well, and those can be, um, you know, called up by their state government, governor and uh, under different authorities to help out with different things, just like if there was a disaster relief effort, like a hurricane, you know what I mean? They Mm. get called up for, and they do have some cyber expertise that can help with that. So there's different, you know, elements that um, can help state and local governments. They're not staffed or that's not their full-time job is to do that. And again, Department of Homeland Security and FBI, depending upon what happened, would be involved if there's, you know, ransomware attacks and things like that. Um, and, And honestly, some of the things that Cybercom helps with in addition to the other agencies is making sure that, and the NSA does a good job at this too, is making sure that civilian corporations understand, you know, what are ways to protect their, their networks better, you know, giving advice and, and information on standards of things that are, are good ways to do it. And, and, you know, they also uh, uh, push them back to look at things that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, 
puts out all sorts of great cyber guidance. So they make people aware of those things, you know, and, 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 and honestly being aware and, and acting on it is the biggest, uh, the best thing that civilian corporations can do and not just sit back and admire the problem or think it's not going to happen to you because it's going to happen to you. It's going to be a question of when, not if. And so just be prepared and have your plans in place and have good contingency plans ready to execute that you've actually practiced. Um, so if you do lose your company's IT networks for not just a couple hours, but like maybe a couple weeks, how are you going to continue on your no-fail mission? Um, and uh, so those are kinds of things that uh, Cybercom, the Department of Homeland Security, FBI are constantly working with uh, civilian organizations to make sure they realize so what I hear you saying is that uh, the interagency process for cyber in the U.S. government is critical, uh, and then there's also the public-private partnership between government entities in the, in the United States and our uh, commercial uh, entities. Is that a fair way to, to summarize yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I think it's, you know, we can't go in some commercial companies and, and defend their networks for them, right? But right. we can give them advice about the best way to do that. And to give them to share, collaborate, and like maybe on intelligence or different things that you know Department of Homeland Security puts advisories out about and things like that. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is retired retired Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett, a cybersecurity and cyber operations expert. Uh, so Admiral Barrett, you, you let's continue on in this discussion. You've been in charge of offensive and defensive cyber operations, and you've been in charge of cybersecurity. Let's talk a little bit more about the challenges of cybersecurity, if we if we may. Uh, there have been some serious breaches uh, over the last decade in companies all across uh, the U.S. and and even government systems, penetrations uh, at both the government systems and, and corporate systems. But also this new fad of the ransomware attacks that even go down to the individual level. So let, maybe let's start small and work our way back up. As a cybersecurity expert who's worked in that classified world, I, I'm assuming you still maintain a top secret uh, SCI clearance. Is that true? Yeah, I still have a clearance. Uh-huh. Uh, so what advice do you have for the citizens of our nation when they are online? Give us some cyber hygiene guidance, if you would. Yeah, so some of it is really unsexy and basic, honestly. <laughs> It's patching your system. So like even your iPhone, when someone, you, know, you get the little pop-up that says, hey, there's a new update. Do you want it? Don't say no because uh, you're in the middle of doing something or it's inconvenient or whatever. Patch your system because normally those are security-related patches that will make your information and your transactions more secure. Um, and be mindful of where you're putting your information. I, I do uh, find it a bit comical nowadays that people are like, well, you know, I don't put any information on the Internet because, it, it, you know, I don't want them to know anything about me and everything. I'm like, well, that horse is out of the barn. They <laughs> yeah, exactly. already know everything about you. Yeah. I mean, you know what the sad part is? When I turned 54 uh, this summer, I the first email I got said, uh, best toenail clippers for seniors. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's that's the, that's the email I get. That's because big data, like I didn't put my birthday out there, but, you know, big data, I, that's what Google does. That's what Facebook yeah. does, right? I mean, they, they're selling and using your data and your information. So, just be judicious about what you put out there. Don't put out more than you have to. You're going to have to put some stuff out there if you want to live in this world. That's reality. If you want to do your banking and everything else. But but make sure the sites that you visit are legitimate sites. You know, make sure that your um, your company has good policies for virtual private networks. For example, like during COVID time, a lot of us have been working from home. And you don't want to make connections through an unsecure network. So make sure you're using things like virtual private networks. You've got good encryption on your data. Um, and that you understand 
where your information's born and how it's being used. Um, don't just click, you know, everybody gets those, um, you know, when you sign up for something, the, the big long, you know, what am I doing with my information? Everybody just scrolls down and clicks yes. And they don't really read what someone you're authorizing someone to do with your information. And then before you know it, you're getting a thousand spam emails from somebody because right. they've sold your name to every list on the planet, right? Yep. Uh, okay, let, let's shift over so to So be careful about that. And, you know, and you some risk because there's certain things you're going to want to do, right? But but other times you may say, okay, you know, I'm not willing to do that, and I don't want to do that, and um, that's okay. And figure out another way to make whatever transaction you want to do happen. Um, but there's good cyber hygiene at home and with your kids too. You know, going to certain sites or uh, other things like that will just provoke a, a litany of, of attacks on your computer. You know what I mean? And, and so, just be really careful about you know things that you get in emails, things that look like they may be from people that you know. Uh, passwords, things like that. Um, you know, we're getting into the age now where you, we're starting to use more biometrics and what is called multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like when your bank sends you a little text that says, hey, I just want to verify this is you. Put the code in that I'm going to text you um, in addition to your login here because passwords are easily crackable now. And right. so the multi-factor authentication that you can, if you can put that on a lot of your uh, the ways that you do business is very good. If they ask you if you want to use it, always say yes. You know, it's a bit of a hassle. I get it. But what's more of a hassle is having your identity stolen or your company's business uh, data stolen. Right. So I, I do teach uh, occasionally in the political science department over at, here at Carleton College in Northfield. And uh, we have that multi-factor authentication for the uh, the email oh, system on, on Carleton. Yeah, that's great. So. Uh, if we could, let's shift over a little bit back to corporate America. And, and I know that you are now a, a board member at a number of different uh, places. We've seen companies like Target, which is based here in Minnesota, be the victim of a rather sophisticated cyber attack. Sony Corporation is another that comes to mind. You mentioned SolarWinds earlier, and there there are many, many others. I personally uh, am always a bit astounded when the press and our political leaders attack the companies for these breaches when the companies have been the the victims of these illicit cyber activities. As a corporate board member with deep knowledge of of cybersecurity, what do you think is the best approach for America to take with regard to cyber intrusions? Should we we punish the victims or or do a better job of working collaboratively in that public-private partnership to remove vulnerabilities uh, in the the cyber arena or combat them directly? Yeah, so I I would say the latter, but I would also say on the former, you know, a lot of companies are lazy in their cybersecurity. They don't think it's going to happen to them. And let me tell you, um, a lot of times, um, now not with the more sophisticated attacks, but the brute force attacks and stuff, they're going after vulnerabilities that have been identified sometimes in cases for years that people haven't corrected. Okay. So, you know, that's your dance with the devil there. If if things are out there that they tell you, hey, patch this or... Or don't allow this protocol through a firewall or a router or do this or do that. And you don't do that and you don't have a good chief information systems uh, security officer or CIO to manage that process and the processes within your organization. Um, you're going to get had. And you know what? Maybe uh, some public shame is in order there. You know, your stockholders and shareholders need to know that you didn't do that right. And, and so that's why, like, for corporate boards and things like that, they need to be asking tough questions of the companies themselves and their CISOs and their CIOs, the chief information officers and chief information uh, system security officers to say, okay, what are you doing with regard to ransomware? What are you doing with regard to protection of information? Do you know which are, where are the crown jewels of information for us? How are you protecting those? You know, what's the risk we're assuming if we can't fund all of the protections that we would like to do? Because, you know, you could spend an infinite amount of money on cybersecurity and still get had, right? 
Um, what you want to do is you want to make it harder for someone to go after you. Don't be the easy target or you will be the easy target and they'll get you. Um, so make it so that you know everybody in your organization feels like cybersecurity is an all hands responsibility and that you know I'm not going to click on PDF files that get sent to me from people I don't know and things like that that can be the way that they get into your networks. And so you know making sure that everybody understands all hands thing and having prioritization about what things both process technology and people that you will do in your organization to make your network secure. And then how you communicate that. Like when you do get had, you know, a lot of companies won't tell anybody because they don't want the reputational damage. They're afraid of what their shareholders will think. You know, they won't report it to the the DHS CISA branch, which they're supposed to and things like that. And by not reporting it though, you know, you're, you're making it worse for everybody else because they may not know that that someone's out there doing whatever they did to you to them. And if they know, they can kind of look for indicators of that or prevent it or whatever. And so so I think we need to reduce the shame of reporting, but it's not really a shame of reporting. It's more of a, a business concern and reporting that if, you know, like with Target, you know, like if I don't tell everybody their data has been had, then they'll still shop with me and trust their credit card with me. And if I tell them, maybe they'll go shop at Walmart. Well, yeah, but you need to tell them. Uh, that's just the way it is. That's yeah. it's the cost of doing business. And if they're loyal customers, they realize that, you know, you're going to, do a better job and that you know that, that horse is out of the barn can't be done you know and they may need to change their credit card or whatever but you know my point is that everybody at some point is going to have some sort of cybersecurity issue and uh, uh, you just want to make sure that the companies have you have confidence in the companies and they have confidence in you as the consumer um, that that relationship will continue even beyond a, a cyber blip because they're going to have those so so from a from a policy perspective, what, would our country be better served if there was uh, mandated reporting of cyber intrusion, cyber attacks, uh, so that we could work more collaboratively in the public-private partnership to defend against those things? Yeah, and I think that you know that, that's what the Biden's executive order that came out in May was really trying to get at because you know they have provisions in there for organizations for uh, information sharing, removing barriers to sharing threat information. Um, particularly not just with IT networks, which are you might think of like as the computer on your desk or your your handheld, but OT, operational technology, which is sort of like the things that run the electrical engineering plants and the nuclear engineering plants and, you know, the, the water system and those kind of things. So they're removing barriers to sharing that kind of language with uh, that kind of uh, information with civilian agencies and stuff. And, and all that helps. The faster you can get information out, about a threat, um, the more quickly people can get prepared to act or react to it. Um, you know, and they're they're modernizing a lot of things about cybersecurity. Like, so you know how the FAA has when there's a plane crash, they have an organization that comes in and looks at that plane crash and does an analysis of what happened and reports on it in a very non non um, uh, prior uh, partisan way or anything. It's just all hey, here's the facts, here's what happened. Yeah. They're doing the same thing with this Biden order under. Uh, to do the same thing for cyber security or cyber attacks and things like that. And that will help flesh out, you know, what really happened, what can be done, just like like a, a review of a plane crash. Mm-hmm. So that cyber safety review board is important. And, and, and there was other things in there, too, like they put out some federalized, uh, some standardized uh, playbooks, um, which are sort of a, a guide to how you would respond to cybersecurity vulnerabilities or incidents. And so the Department of Homeland Security, um, under the director of CISA, would be putting those out for uh, civilian organizations. So they, they are doing a lot of things to to try to help with that. And again, that Biden order was really, really good. And it was very detailed, honestly, in 
in the things that that they want us to do as a nation and with the support of all the civilian organizations. I mean, this is not something the federal government can do alone or in no, state governments. Right. Yeah, this is definitely a public-private partnership, uh, like you read about, as they say. So that said, right. the, Bi- the Biden administration recently named Chris Inglis as the, as the, as the new nation's uh, cyber czar. Uh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. What is his role and how difficult a challenge does he have when it comes to helping to secure the nation? You've been a senior leader as a flag officer uh, serving in this in this world. H- how much of a challenge does Chris Inglis have on his hands? Well, he's got a big challenge, but he's the right man for the job. I mean, one thing I love about Chris is he's, he's spent a lot of time at NSA. He's got a cute his background is just impeccable in cybersecurity. So the nation is lucky to have him and lucky that he took that job because that is a thankless job. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but he's got the support of a president who is interested in this topic and understands how real it is and impactful it is for our nation. You know, the next war may not be anything that anybody gets a bomb dropped on. It could be the bomb of cyber, right? And so we have to really be prepared for that because that could be way more devastating to us than, than a bomb, a traditional kinetic attack. And Chris is the right guy because he can also... You know, he doesn't dolphin speak is what I say. Like, you know, a lot of times when the <laughs> nerds get together, the tech guys, we we say we talk in routers and protocols and blah, blah, blah. And nobody understands what the heck we're talking about or what it means to them or why it's important. Right. Chris is very, very good at putting in context for people who are not in this field what it means to them and why it matters. And that's very important, particularly at the senior level of the government where you're dealing with, you know, uh, all these different agencies who have their own agendas and their own programs and their own everything. And then you have Congress and then you have uh, big government uh, and, um, uh, partnerships and consortiums and stuff. That you, so he is the right man, I think, a right person for um, helping to pull together all those and, and putting in place things that matter. I mean, Chris uh, really understands what pieces of uh, the cyber puzzle are the most important and, and when they're most important and what needs to be done about it um, so that he can you know, put that focus of effort, whether it's policy or assisting um, with the collaboration between the agencies and things like that and civilian world. Uh, so, Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, uh, what else should our listeners know about the challenges inherent in, in cybersecurity today? Maybe we could project forward a little bit. What new technologies do you see coming soon that may make cybersecurity easier or, or maybe harder? We keep hearing about uh, quantum computing and quantum encryption. Is there something else that's coming, maybe? Well, I think what's going to help cybersecurity in cyber world, speed is is imperative because things happen so fast and damage can be done so fast or inflicted so fast if that's what we choose to do. Right. And so and they could have second and third order effects that nobody thought about. And so there's things that, you know, you need to think through if I have a cyber attack, what are the things? How do I keep my no mission moving forward? And, you know, the second and third order effects piece, you have to test those, not just talk about it, right? You have to put people through the pain of testing it so they understand, okay, this is what it really means if I lose that and I can't use that information or that system anymore for my business to continue. Um, an example is after uh, 9-11, I don't know if you remember, uh, Chris, when they when they shut down all the train trestles because they were looking for bombs potentially underneath the train trestles. Mm. And so commercial rail was shut down for a couple of days. And what they realized was that L.A. was within three days of running out of fresh water because the only way they could move chlorine to 
purify water was via rail at the time. Mm. The second order, third order thing that we thought about, right? So, I mean, you could have a whole host of other significant problems that aren't cyber related, but that are caused by a cyber attack. And so um, I think that the biggest thing that people can do is prepare. And I don't mean to be doomsday, you know, go all Ted Kaczynski and get your, you know, <laughs> your, your your basement, you know, lined with lead and, and, and food and all that kind of stuff, 100 pounds of beefaroni down there. But, you know, you want to make sure that you are, you understand that that threat is real and that threat is constant and that threat's going to grow and that artificial intelligence will help us in the future to help find that threat faster and, and give us indicators, but it's still responsible. It comes back to people to either make decisions to allow systems to operate in an automated fashion, to put those defenses in place, like when they see them without having to wait for the human, or if they really want a human in that loop, that they understand that that, is going to cause a potential delay when the adversary could be doing more damage in your network. So you have to assume a little bit of risk and trust technology in some cases, even when the technology may be the the target of the threat. So when I, in in summary, if I if I heard what I think I heard, uh, because computers are getting faster and more powerful, and their ability to attack is so so incredibly powerful in that speed uh, world that we might actually wind up having to allow commu- computers to fight a cyber war for us because we simply cannot react fast enough to the things that are happening in that world. Is that, is that sort yeah, of... Yeah, that's, that's my belief. And, uh, you know, then there becomes all sorts of ethical decisions right. related to that, you know, and that gets really complicated. I get it. But, um, you know, it's a new world we're operating in, and we have to realize that that is... If that's where your adversaries are, you can't deny... And wish away that that's not going to happen because it's going to happen, and you just need to be ready for it. Yeah, have to live in the real world. Uh, so, exactly. so unfortunately, uh, we have reached the end of our of our show today. Uh, Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, thank you for joining us on National Security this week. If our listeners wanted to find your book, uh, "Rock the Boat: Inspire Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader," uh, just if you could remind us where we can find that book. Uh, yeah, just uh, online at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and uh, and I uh, hope uh, you enjoy it. Thanks for the talk today; I appreciate it. And, and thank you for taking time from your busy schedule. I, I know you are out in Seattle right now for a number of meetings, uh, but thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us here on National Security this week. Yes. Yeah, So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love your feedback on National Security This Week here at KYMN Radio. So please, take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a great week, everybody. Take care.